The American education system has been languishing as it tries to make good on what used to be seen as an obvious promise. And that was to deliver a quality set of outcomes and opportunities for every single child that walked through the schoolhouse doors. Over time though, there's been a lot of re-examination on what that aspect of the American dream and promise has truly produced. Now more than ever, there has been a crisis of faith in nearly every aspect of the public education system as a movement towards greater accountability and a more serious look at institutional, racism, funding issues, segregation and quality have made more and more Americans retreat from accepting this system at face value. And yet in the midst of all of this, there are still educators, like some of you who are listening, those that teach our children and me, that believe that the system possesses an opportunity to make good on the notion that it still has the ability to serve a public good. But let's be real, this system has to change. What does it mean when an individual, an educator, comes face to face with the system's flaws and then realizes that the heart of it exists, a persistent thorn of racism? Systems intentionally bent on oppressing and breaking non-white people exist inside of the education system, taking form in the notion of policies inside of classrooms to decision-making impacting our students and ultimately our communities. And so in this part three of white work, we're looking at whiteness through the lens and experiences of Taylor, a white educator whose racial epiphanies are coming as a result of a very professional context as he comes face to face with standards, mindsets, and a web, and I do mean a web of biases. He talks with Laura about what provokes him about his whiteness. Taylor is an experienced educator that knows a few things about what it means to provide a quality education to kids. You see, he's an educator in Houston who's worked in high-performing school networks, writing curriculum, teaching classes, and leading committees while immersing himself in the data. And that data he uses to help him set standards and targets that he should follow in order to improve the educational outcomes for students that he serves. But there are some things that Taylor doesn't know that he must become a student to be able to learn. Taylor runs into a statistical situation that unpacks a lot of what lurks beneath the surface here. You see, in this situation, we find academic targets that seem to be aimed at keeping black students on one level and their white peer students on an entirely different one. The problem is I'm looking at this system, Laura, and there's a very wide gap in schools truly holding, I think, kids to the same bar. And what it looks like is, you know, if I was to say closing the opportunity gap for kids, that would maybe look like, um, a five, 10 year plan where we look at the upper quartile of affluent, you know, white students in the country and we set a targets where we're, we're moving the needle, getting every kid to that level. Um, the problem with domain three and the reason this is a problem is um, it's not stated on TEA's website. You have to look in this manual to find it. On page 40, there is a 
data table. And that data table sets specific academic goals for students by subgroup. And schools get check marks for whether or not they hit those targets, which adds up to their accountability score, whether they are going towards an A or an F rating. Um, and the problem is that those numbers are wildly different for white students versus students of color. Um, I've got the data table pulled up right now. Um, a school can get a check mark, so to speak, for accountability. We are closing the gaps for both white and African-American students, while the number that the school needs to meet in terms of being on grade level for African-American students is almost exactly half of what it is for whites. Um, white students, for example, are the academic achievement target is 60% for white students in reading, while for African-American students, the target is 32%. The impact of this being is that schools can and exist in compliance with this system that is based on inequity. It's based on the numbers themselves come from historical data. There are, it's already based on what has been and not what should be, um, which I think just for someone who, as, like a, as a white male who, who chooses to work in communities of color, I think that sits, doesn't sit right with me. As he steps into what it means to be in an environment where the expectancy for white students is nearly, get this, twice as high as the black students, it's here that we bring Taylor and Laura together so that they can zoom out a bit. They take a trip down memory lane as they explore what it means for Taylor to get to this point, not just in his career, but also in his life. What about Taylor's own background and identity and form, how he sees where he's at? Well, Taylor, you and I are just getting to know each other. And I know you have a story to tell. So bring me, bring me in. Um, uh, what's your story? Um, right on. Um, so I, I'm in Houston. I've been in education here for five years, going into my sixth. Um, five of those was in the classroom as a high school science teacher. And I'm moving now into a role where I get to work with a school district here, kind of across the board, to help grow and increase student achievement which means getting the chance to actually go in and, and be with kids, um, which just like at my, at my heart is, is what I, what it was what I want. And it's hard for teachers. If there's any teachers who have ever walked away from the classroom, it's hard not being in there with the kids. So I'm excited that this role helps me, I think grow more um, and challenge myself in new ways, but not lose that aspect of being able to, to be learning alongside and learning with kids in the classroom, which I think is at the essence of, of how we, we help kids learn and, and improve education is being in the classroom and having the focus beyond you know, better teaching. Um, and I'm glad I get to be a part of that. Um, before, I was, before I was in Houston, I, I grew up in North Carolina. I'm from Raleigh. Um, and that was, that was, that's what I still consider home. Um, I'm a big fan of the mountains, the Blue Ridge Mountains. There's nothing like them. Um, 
but you know, out here in Houston, I can't say the biggest hill we have is like the overpass um, <laughs> on I-45 going over 10. So <laughs> a little, little flatter than I would, than I would like it, but um, I enjoy living in Houston and there's like, there's really good work to be done in Houston and I'm, I'm glad to be a part of that work. <clears throat> uh, I grew up in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I spent a lot of time in North Carolina growing up. And so the Blue Ridge mountains are a, a really important part of, of my identity, of my childhood, of, um, of the land that I know and, and call home and, and spent time on. So I love that we've got that connection. So from the jump, Taylor notices something is wrong already. He's encountered a data point that strikes him as unfair and maybe even shatters what sort of idyllic perspective he might have had about working in the city or even this country. I don't believe this is about Taylor being naive. I don't think it's about that or about seeking to undermine him, but it is about what things we presume or bring to us what blinders we may have on when we come from presumably peaceful, homogenous environments. It speaks to this universal perspective of whiteness and the belief from a white point of view that all things are good and peaceful because hell, they just are. But this incident begins to shatter all of that and Taylor has to now confront a system and some reflections about the nature of the so-called achievement gap and what purpose it's seeking to serve, which increasingly feels like it's more harmful than he may originally have suspected. So as I understand it, you were digging through some data and found some concerning stuff. Help bring me into your world and the why we're here together on this podcast right now. For sure. So I think an important part of not just helping kids learn, I think the emphasis should always be kids in the classroom learning, um, is how we ensure that's not just happening in the classroom I'm in, but that's happening in like every classroom everywhere. Um, and a part of the system that's in place right now is how schools are rated. Texas just passed recently, this last year, um, a new accountability rating system um, that focuses on three things, um, student achievement, student growth, and a third section that's called closing the gaps, closing the achievement gaps, ensuring educational equity. I was looking at a 194 page report that was released about 10 days ago. It's the 2018 Accountability Manual by TEA, if you're interested in looking at it. And on paper, it sounds all good and fine. You know, schools should be accountable for making sure that not just most of their students, but you know, each subgroup of students they serve, whether it be by ethnicity or language status or learning needs, should be held accountable for learning. Um, the problem is I'm looking at the system, Laura, and there is a very wide gap in schools truly holding, I think, kids to the same bar. And what it looks like is, you know, if I was to say closing the opportunity gap for kids. That would maybe look like um, a five, 10 year plan where we look at the upper quartile of affluent, you know, white students in the country and we set a targets where we're, we're moving the needle, getting every kid to that level. Doesn't sit right with me for a couple of reasons. I think A, just because I think the bar that's being expected by TEA um, that they are asking us to hold our students to is 
wildly different from what I believe my students and all students are capable of. But B, like the system that's designed to hold our schools accountable is compliant with edu educational inequity as it is now. Um, and something that I'm trying to see got to change is like, A, not just like how I can ensure that where I am in my school district, that we are holding all students to a high bar and like making sure that that equity is a reality. But like, what does that mean for schools across Texas? Like, what does that mean for other schools in, in Houston where schools who are getting check marks for all their subgroups are still part of like a persisting in inequity in our, in our city? Um, and that's kind of where I am. And that's where I've been kind of grappling these last couple of weeks is like trying to figure out how I can approach this and like what I can do to A, first educate myself more um, and then B and like dive in and like seek towards like a, a, a true star, a North star that's not just check marks for these different achievement groups. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. Let me just check what I heard uh, and kind of pick my jaw off up of from, from the desk. What I heard you say was that schools in the state of Texas get to meet academic performance expectations by holding and solidifying lowered expectation for, expectations for kids of color and by strengthening and reinforcing the gaps that are currently present in academic performance by race and ethnicity. How do you find that? Like, it sounds like you got to do an awful lot of detective work if you're a resident or a, a, a teacher or a parent in Texas to figure this out. How on earth did you discover this? That's, that's a really good question. Um, I was sitting in a meeting. It was a meeting with some school officials and like an outside analyst because as school districts, we are now, instead of receiving a pass fail, we're now receiving an A through F rating. So I was in a meeting where we were talking about, okay, let's look at this new accountability system. How would we explain this to a parent? How would we explain this to a student? How our school or how our district is being held accountable? And looking at it, how it was explained to me first was, oh, you know, well, schools are responsible for making sure that not just some of their, you know, subgroups or different student populations meet academic goals, but all of them should, and that the schools are going to be accountable, and that will be like visible um, for the school. So in all humility, actually, I, one of the ways I actually initially positioned this um, to our district was like, hey, you know, I think maybe we can, if we were to explain this to a parent, we can center that conversation around equity, um, that we want, you know, we are going to hold ourselves accountable to you know, making sure all of our students meet high bars, not just some of them. That was my initial response when I was first learning about it. Um, another participant in that group though, actually pushed back and was like, well, have, have you looked at the, the numbers though? And I was like, can you, can, you, can you share more? I wasn't sure what you meant. And she showed me that chart. And I, I had to take a couple of steps back because um, what on the surface might seem like rooted in equity was, was based on an inequitable system. Um, and I actually ended up retracting that statement. I agree with her. I was like, actually, you know, you're, you're right. I don't, think, I don't think it would be fair or just to try to explain it this way to a parent or a student. I would rather explain it like in terms of what our district is going to do to make sure every group achieves at a high level. Um, and not that we are part of a system that's going to help lower the bar for your child or any child. You know, it strikes me that someone could have been through that same experience, Taylor, and like had that conversation and 
seen the data and, and, um, the standards and kind of come to the conclusion of like, well, that sucks. Like this is systematized. This is embedded now in policy for the state of Texas. And, um, it's unfair. It's cruel. It's racist. It's, you know, um, it is systemic disenfranchisement and like that sucks because I'm an individual. Um, and I, I don't, I don't know how to even go about bringing this into a, a personal terrain in which I could do something about it. And yet we're having this conversation and you seem to have a very different stance. So like, how, how are you taking this in? How do you see this, um, through the lens of your whiteness and through this notion of white work? I'm like, I'll, I'll be very transparent. Like those are, those are questions like I'm, I'm still grappling with. Um, I think some things that come to mind um, is like when it comes to like, when it comes to students learning and student achievement, um, the number one factor leading to student achievement is excellent teaching. I, I think the thing that I'm starting to question more is the idea that throwing money so like, for example, like schools that are underperforming the, the response from TEA, and I mean, this is nothing, this is not exclusive to Texas, it's to throw money, it's to increase funding. And, I, and on paper, it makes sense. Let's, um, let's give more money to the schools who need it, money being the, the bottom line. And, and districts and schools can split up that money however they want to. Um, I think the, the example that I think of, I was in a, I was in a school two years ago in Houston and it was an underperforming school it was a school in um in a low-income neighborhood with predominantly Hispanic and black students um the restroom had solar-powered urinals um and automatic um, motion sensor lights um to, which, which I thought was ironic like, if the lights turn off after a while and the urinals are solar powered, how does that even make sense? First of all, that sounds like a waste of money. Um, all this, all this money for these things that had nothing to do with student achievement. Um, and this is at a school where, you know, the school is an IR for repeatedly not meeting expectations around star scores, not just for any subpopulation, but for all students. Um, so I, I think the questions I'm starting to have is like, a, the first thing I want to know is like, who else knows about this? And like, um, where, do, what do other, where do other people stand on like the numbers? And like, how can I like start to like channel this and like find out A, like who created these laws? Um, and like, A, start I guess by learning more from them, but also like challenging the notion of what the system is based on. Um, I'll also name like that sounds great. I'm I'm still working towards and I like am actually like looking forward to like thinking through and partnering with like what are some ways that I can like start to do that um, in this work and where I work. As Taylor becomes more incensed and tries to look at the system at large, he starts to question what's really at play here and what solutions does it really require? Taylor starts to go deeper. One of the things he begins addressing is the notion of whether or not the achievement and opportunity gaps are resource reliant to fix. As he puts it, it isn't just about resources. He can walk into a number of schools with high need achievement gap experiencing students 
and there's been an investment in resources. They often haven't been the right resources, though. For him, the answer to this puzzle is grounded in quality and consistent teaching. That's the premium resource that he wants to see targeted to Black and Latinx students that need it the most. But at the end of the day, the system's reluctancy to invest in those schools in this particular way is quite troubling. So what happens? We see this all the time. Aesthetically rich investments that aren't impacting their intended targets that deeply. Couple that with the persistently low expectations. And you'll see that Taylor is encountering a system that seems designed to want to give lip service and surface supports to inequitable situations without providing much meaningful support to the students. It's in these revelations that Taylor begins to realize that the public education system in Texas and the policy influencers surrounding and inside of it are actively perpetuating oppressive systems, giving life and license to keep black and brown communities and their collective progress at bay while still allowing that white community that's more affluent across town to thrive and to be the bar standard that no one sees as a form of structural inequality. Take me under your heart. Um, what are some of the fears you have? What are some of the feelings you have? What are some of the tensions maybe that, that you're feeling or holding right now as you consider all this? Um, I'm gonna think about that for a second. Yeah. I think probably the one that I've thought about most and that like, I think for a white person who has spent like the last five years growing in like how I can use my whiteness, like what my whiteness is, what my, what my blind spots are as a white person. I think the thing that makes me nervous and I think makes me uncomfortable is that I, as I go into like work in communities of color, um, there are people of color in that community that know more about how to leverage my privilege than I do. Um, which I think is like a blind spot that I have that like, I want to continue working through. I think that's one. Um, this actually whole experience has kind of made me realize too that I think I've had I think I've had like a fictitious limit in terms of what my, like if I was to think of like levels of um, being like a white person in this work, I think I've, I've for a long time has have set the limit at being an ally um, and not like looking past that um, and like having that being the ceiling for my work and I'm actually excited about, I think, diving into this because like I, that is a pathway that I want to challenge more is like moving past that and finding like ways beyond just standing beside people of color and injustice, but like actually navigating, learning about and like attacking systems that are causing it. Um, and I think that that for me is, is new and unexplored territory that I want to dive into. And now we go inward because for all of that, Taylor can pinpoint what's going wrong in the system, there's also some limitations to himself that he brings to the work. It means that he's got, as he calls it, blind spots 
places that represent gaps in his own thinking and an inability to see how he's leaving opportunity and impact on the table by not leveraging his whiteness to impact the system, even on a small scale, to change. As he realizes that people of color around him can see what he doesn't see, he gets provoked to think about how deeply is he truly being an advocate and an ally for the causes and the people he says he believes in. And that word that you used, ally, means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. How, how do you personally define that or think about that? Um, I think it definitely starts like with an awareness of, of your own privilege and where you stand in relation to other. It definitely like the basis of that is like critical consciousness, knowing, understanding like your own social political capital, um, knowing where your privilege stands in relation to others is a big part of that. Um, I, I think the, the biggest part that's been defining for me is like how you choose to align yourself to people who, um, people of color, people who have been marginalized, how you align yourselves to their needs, to what is important to them, to their voice in issues that impact them. And that might not necessarily impact me directly, um, but like opting in to choose to make those important to me and like choosing to stand beside them um, in those times and in those moments. Uh, let, me, let, me play, let me play that back. Um what I've heard you say. So it sounds like in the past you have oriented as an ally. In other words, you know, there's, there's racism out there. It, uh, it, it most directly affects people of color and people with marginalized and oppressed identities. And it's my job to stand behind or beside them and, and do my work in supporting their ability to break down this system. And what I hear you shifting to now is, um, and check me on this because I'm gonna be projecting onto it at the same time. But I think what I hear you saying now is, I see myself as more responsible for the existence of the system and more responsible for undoing it myself versus believing that I, I need to stand beside or behind a person of color as they unravel the system. It's my responsibility to understand what my responsibility is and do that work myself and be accountable to people of color. Um, because, you know, sometimes I, I feel like um, as white people, we're, um, especially as we take responsibility for the existence of white supremacy and racism and want to be responsible for undoing it. Sometimes it's a bit like um, having a blindfold tied around your head and just like kind of swinging, swinging wildly, uh, trying to take jabs or stabs because we're the least positioned to be able to see the, the system since we grew it and function within, with inside it. But I hear you delineating between, it sounded like when you were defining ally, the primary responsibility was on people of color to solve the problem and you are a supporter in that versus where you're orienting now, you are responsible for addressing, solving the problem and you want to be in positions of accountability to communities and people of color. But check me on that. Yes, and I, I think to adding to that, I something that I think clicked for me too is, um, your analogy with the blindfold is that I think part of that too is sometimes 
I feel like I've waited for situations of injustice to come to me or come to my, come on my radar or for me to be in the same room as it happening for it then for me to say, wait a minute, you know, this isn't right. I'm going to take a stand. I'm standing beside you versus owning, getting up out of bed in the morning, so to speak, and seeking that on my own. It's clear from these exchanges that Taylor wants to do the work to uplift and create meaningful outcomes for people of color in the communities that he's serving in. He believes in the potential that education offers like so many of us, but he's had to grapple with that against the realities that the education system just doesn't seem interested in solving racial injustice and inequality. Taylor and Laura's conversation also illuminate that for all of his sanctimony, Taylor has allowed his passivity and disgust to be conflated with doing the work and truly leveraging his societal and positional power to proactively take a stance and enact change on behalf of others. Yes, you're outraged, but are you doing the work? But instead, so many white people are in a position to remain comfortable or just react in judgment, something that likely would have upset a lot of tailors in the world if they had the same series of questions and criteria applied to their sense of justice. This is often why it's insufficient to just talk about your work being a public good in the cause of civil rights and racial justice. It takes a lot to wade in these systems and see your mission as one of being able to actively break up and break down these very institutions. The reality is that dissolution requires proactive steps, not just reacting and tweaking. It's the difference between radical and incremental change and the belief that one can break systems to serve a much better purpose. As we go into the final parts of our conversation between Laura and Taylor, we start to listen to them explore what it means for whiteness to battle whiteness on some of the largest scales possible. And to see yourself as a vital component that needs to come in and disrupt the very system that's giving you your livelihood while actively undermining the people and the work around you. So, so this course that I run, this notion of holding something and becoming more conscious of how we hold something. So you are now an ambassador of a particular truth, um, a, a truth that's baked into the policy of Texas that relies on racism and lowered expectations for kids of color. Um, and, 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 you know, like, no surprise there. That's what our education system has been doing since since its creation, our public education system. Um, and when I say no surprise, I don't mean to be like, no big deal. I just mean, let's, let's name that the system is functioning exactly how it was designed to function. But you've discovered this particular truth that's hidden in 194 pages of data and words somewhere online in the Texas school system. And, and so a question that comes up for me is like, how, how do you want to hold that truth? If we're talking about first how we change the system at the institutional level, it starts in the center with like, how do I, how am I changing? Yes, exactly. Inside out change. Yes. And then 
zooming out from there, how I'm changing first to how my circle, my inner circle is changing to how, and then building from yeah. there. Yeah. Cause there's this inherent tension. And I think there's a lot of inherent tension in ultimately building a practice of justice, which is as white people, we have created these systems to favor us, our ancestors, maybe not us directly, but like we are responsible for the problems that have been built. It is our responsibility to unravel and eradicate them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so on the one hand, we are owners of the problem and responsible for solving it. And on the other hand, we are the least well positioned to see the forces at play and or to understand how they affect people of color. And so we have to be directly accountable to people of color, even as we take direct responsibility for being the people that have to undo and unravel and eradicate the, the shit storms that we have built that are killing other human beings. So, okay. So tell me a little bit more about what this means for you in your personal life and or whiteness and or just like how you walk around in the world, Taylor. I think the first thing starting starting with myself is like, I need, I need to be able to look at this and continue to look beyond the numbers. It wouldn't be, I can imagine someone saying it, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair to the African-American students or the Latino students if we were to set them at the same bar as the white students. Um, I would actually love for someone to say that to me um, and have a chance to like sit in that tension and sit in that um, and like hear more from them and actually hear them say out loud more of their thought process behind coming to a conclusion like that. Um, I think the single thing that like I want to continue doing is like challenging, challenging things that are built on and based on what has been and not what should be. So for example, these numbers come from previous year's star data across the state of Texas, like that is how it has been. That does not, and like we can think of all too many examples in history where that's the case too. Um, being able to look at things when we're asking questions and when people ask me questions about things that are best for kids, um, having that centered and be based on what should be and not what is, I think is like my, my entry point to like, what I, the lens I need to look through when I have conversations, because I'm going to be like in my role, I, I work with a lot of data. I work with um, a lot of data for many different like student groups in our district. Um, and I think that's something that I want to continue to like challenge myself on and hold myself accountable for. I almost imagine it's like a backpack filled with this data and uh, that reveals racism within the system that you kind of now you've got it's like a part of your accessories that you're carrying around every day because you have found the truth of this like what do you want to do with that backpack you want to open it up and invite other people to look in you know um you want to drop it off on someone's porch do you want to like dissect it and get into it and it makes me think about like I'm imagining being you like you mentioned earlier like wanting to dig in even deeper to understand where this came from who built this etc like how do you how do you dig in there? Um, is that a responsibility that you, you want to take on or not? I'm also thinking about like, do you become a storyteller? Do you become a rabble rouser? Do you become a sharer of information? Do you, how are you talking about this with teachers in your school building? Or are you a rabble maker, rabble rouser, like truth teller so that uh, folks of color don't have to put their lives in jeopardy when they speak 
the truth of these things and call out the racism within systems. There's, there's a certain degree of safety that you're afforded because of who you are and what you look like that other folks aren't. At the same time, you know, to that point of accountability that we were talking about earlier, making sure that we're not causing more trouble uh, that will fall inevitably to people and leaders of color. And, and, and so how do we be accountable in um, the stories that we are sharing and the rabble that we are rousing to make sure that is directly responsive to the people that it impacts most? I, I think from that, those, Ada, that gave me like a lot to think about when you share that. I think like the three things that I think I can, I want to like discuss more is like, the first thing you mentioned was like, how do I share this now that I have the backpack? How do I choose to share it? I think the second layer to that is, well, now I have this data and I'm sharing it. How am I helping my, or, or what is my role in within the school district that I'm in? How do we ensure that this is not our North Star? and that we have our own North Star that is um, set on the basis that all kids can and will learn and that we're gonna make it happen. And then the third one is just like thinking through ways that I can use my privilege um, in ways that ensures the safety of others and that I can, um, and being in systems and places that I can navigate safely where other maybe others cannot. What's at the heart of this exchange is the idea that white people like Taylor, who are reflective about where they are beginning to unpack the system, need to think about the ways in which they need to give up power in order to change things. That part of an internal journey about what's happening in terms of racism and racist systems means not only acknowledging the many ways it makes itself apparent, and things like school data and resources, but also that as a result, your role may be to advocate for direction and purpose that needs to limit your voice, your presence, and sometimes your advocacy. It's funny, it, when you said the word rabble rouser, that was like, I think that's like, if I was like say a vision of like two weeks, like how I wanna be, that's a great word I'd wanna use. Oh, cool, right and on. I think what helps me get to the rebel rouser um, stage is I think I first need to just like continue to educate myself before I, you know, and I need, I need to fully understand what's in that backpack before I go around sharing it. Taylor, my, my invite is to challenge that just a smidge. It could be so powerful for you to invite other people into that process to do your work in public you don't have to like make a statement again. Like there's other stuff you need to understand about this data. Like, you know, I am, I would like to believe that whoever wrote this mess down at some point in their head or their heart, they were thinking that this was a stance of equity, like would love to, I'm going to, I'm going to hope that that is the truth. That somewhere in there, some thinking about this was based on fairness or justice. That's about as far as I can extend my generosity here. Um, but as you learn more, how, how cool and powerful could it be if you did your work in public and asked yourself some of these questions alongside friends, alongside other educators? It's interesting that, and A, that's a, I really appreciate that push. Um, it's funny that you say that because I've, I've actually never thought of it in that way before because my thoughts were like, 
I think the way I approach it was like, I, I almost want to have all the answers before I start asking questions. But I think something that I'm realizing is like, A, just like from a logistical standpoint, there's like having a room full of people is such more of a wealth of knowledge than just myself in the first place. Um, and like B, if I'm thinking of like the analogy being in the classroom, you know, the, I don't want to, I am not, I should not position myself A as the holder of knowledge in the first place, but like actually ask others to, to share in that heavy lifting with me. Um, like specifically white people and like and really targeting the audience and actually having them come in and, and do that heavy lifting with me. Um, Cause I think at the end of the day, like it, it what's going to change minds and hearts and like the way people think about things. It's not something you can always be passive in. Yeah. Um, but you have to want to take an active role. And I think actually hearing you say that actually made me realize that I should skip that first step and go straight to the second one, which is like getting in a room full of people and, and discussing it and like figuring out like what truths we can pull from it and like what that means for us as educators. Now, one challenging here is sometimes as white people, as a part of how we're conditioned, how we're socialized and trained, we jump into expert role, like um, I'm not quite sure why we did it other than to say it's a part of our like racist training, but we want, we want to be the expert. We want to know the things. And I'm asking you to jump in into like interrogate a role. You know, you didn't create this stuff. Um, and, but you've discovered it. And so you're responsible for it in your own life. And, and the role that expert, um, that drive to kind of want to understand something really deeply or deeply intellectualize it, how that functions for us as white people is it usually delays the work and the conversations that need to be had because we're waiting for more answers before we take action. It often keeps the dialogue hidden and in secret because again, we're like waiting till we find out X, Y, Z before we do ABC. Um, and, uh, and it can reinforce that fallacy that just because we've discovered something, you know, that doesn't necessarily make us the expert in it. I want to invite you to be a complete novice and invite people to learn alongside you and interrogate the hell out of, of what you found alongside you. So Taylor, you've told us a powerful story and you have discovered some data that is going to shape the lives and futures of all kids in Texas in potentially deeply problematic ways. Um, Taylor, I'm wondering what your, your primary insights are from our conversation, some of the feelings that you're having and what you feel moved to do next. I think what's most salient at the surface is I think pushing myself around how I go about challenging systems and challenging works. I think coming into this today, and I even started with it, step one was doing the heavy lifting myself um, I think as a result of maybe that either that like drive is like part of how I've been socialized or like my whiteness of like to be the expert of things before I share. Um, I think what I want to do more of is ju jump like more headfirst into things with people and explore together versus lifting. The difference in those two being I can have all the, I can do all the readings and studying I want to, but that's not leading to action or that's not leading to like immediate, like, and our kids need like kids everywhere, like need this to happen now. They don't have time for a five-year plan. Like our kids need this now. I think something that you said that stood out to me was the idea of like inviting myself to conversations where I'm a novice um, and, and sitting in that tension um, where I'm asking questions that I don't know the answer to. Thanks for that, Taylor.
Yeah, I'm really moved um, by our conversation. I'm I'm moved by you walking into the truth of what you have discovered. The 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 um, quote that keeps coming to me over and over and over throughout this conversation is James Baldwin when he said, "If I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see." And I'm thinking about how you, how I invite other people in to become more conscious of the things that they don't see, especially when we have the the privilege and the responsibility of having discovered things like the data that you have discovered, Taylor, um, and how you how you are now in an intimate relationship with all of the students and all of the lowered percentages for the kids of color in the state of Texas. Yeah, I, I think what I'm thinking next is I'm, I've, the people in the room that were with, within me, going back to like when I first even discovered this, I'm, I'm curious to like go back and like talk to them now and see like how that sat with them or like even just invite them to like ask some more questions. I think some like the questions I want to start asking is like, some people might look at this and say, well, I'm, you know, it's just a number. This isn't necessarily impacting how students learn. I think questions that I want to explore within my circle and with other educators is like, how does, how do these accountability ratings, how do they impact um, white students? How do they impact students of colors? Um, I would really be curious to hear from parents who have schools or have students in these schools to hear their thoughts on, um, from and, and parents, both white parents and like parents of color too, and of parents of students of color. Um, how the, how this sits with them and, and what this makes them think about um, even things from like going to like school choice or like um, what does it mean to like do right by our kids um, I think those are the people that I am excited to like jump into those conversations with and want to be the not the rebel rousers to but the rebel rousers with at the end of the day I think we saw how Taylor's desire to be a competent thoroughfare and trusting educator were at times exercises on him limiting and walking away from his voice and advocacy about the racial injustices he was seeing and experiencing in his work. His immersion on the data, his desire to discern Texas education system standards and approaches to allotting resources, his authentic reaction but missing loop of being proactive, all were reflective of his white privilege. It took him a long time to understand that, but it's through his unpacking with Laura that he comes to face something that stalls a lot of white people. That thinking that he needs to have a fully scripted or formed set of ideas to take action or to inherently see himself as a vital cog to change were pretty big limiting factors. We see a lot with white people in communities when they say they care about the fates of black and brown communities, but can't foresee a world that will require them as white people to be vulnerable enough to unpack and try to do the real work of racial justice and harmony without a clear plan or path forward. It also means too that there's a shaky balance at times for them to see how much they need to be a part of the solution, but also when and where it just makes sense to move out of the way. 
to also learn to meaningfully include the community of people of color and to not just see their advice, but their power too. I wanna live in a world where the interior dialogues around all of this move into the outer space to see white people like Taylor lead conversations in his community that call out racism, but also requires them to show up differently in truth and reconciliation. To lead with vulnerability, questions and reflections about what could be or needs to be different in order for all of us to move forward. Black and brown people, we know that we don't have the luxury of waiting or believing that everything requires the perfect plan. We step out into the world every day on a resilient faith that we can or will have to figure a lot of things out along the way because we often see that the we're in a society that wasn't built for us. So the answers about how to move forward often won't exist in that same imperfect society. So every day we're involuntary vulnerable, having to navigate this world. And if there's anything that the tailors out there need to be grounded in is that they need to walk this path just like we do, to be able to walk in ambiguity but still see the power in that too. To be able to be okay with being aware that there isn't always going to be a clear path, but there's always going to be a clear action to move forward. That's the kind of audacity we need from Taylor and white folks. To be able to look into the face of impossibility, inequity and say, enough. If we're getting to the promised land together, it won't happen if white people think that the work is studying a map when what we really need is to be doing the grabbing of an oar and rowing alongside the rest of us. It might be scary, but y'all, it's the work.